Welcome. You are listening to the Mindful Minute, meditations created for everyday joy. I'm your host, Meryl Arnett, and my passion is making meditation accessible and enjoyable. This podcast is recorded from my live Monday night meditation class, where we have a brief discussion followed by a guided meditation. If you would like to access these meditation practices as standalone audio files for your daily practice, please subscribe to my newsletter at merylarnett.com. It's free and you'll receive a new mini meditation each week, along with behind the scenes content and bonus material for each podcast episode. All right, let's grab a cup of tea, a comfy seat, and settle in for today's practice. Welcome, listeners, to another episode of the Mindful Minute. Thank you all for tuning in. We are about to go so deep today. I have such a fun conversation for you. I am here today with Buddhist meditation teacher and author Andrew Holacek. Andrew is an author on meditation, lucid dreaming, non-dualism, and preparing to die from a Buddhist perspective. And today we are talking about his brand new book, Reverse Meditation, How to Use Your Pain and Most Difficult Emotions as the Doorway to Inner Freedom. This was a really rich conversation. We go in all sorts of directions. I have to tell you, I found his book to be profound and so rich and stimulating. There are some really complex, heady discussions in the book, and he does them in a way that feels really accessible. So that's lovely. You get some quotes from my favorite physicist, Carlo Rovelli, so you know I was happy about that. But I want to tell you my favorite part of this conversation is that I feel like Andrew answers a really important question that comes up so often as we are moving through a meditation practice. More often than not, after you've been meditating for a while, you will notice that you are all of a sudden feeling more. You're feeling more of your own emotions. You're feeling more of the people in your lives' emotions. You're experiencing more or feeling more of the pain in the world. And so often, the immediate next question is, well, what do I do with that? (laughs) How do I handle this amount of pain? How do I hold this amount of pain? How do I stay with it? My friends, Andrew answers this question for us. He guides us through the steps of a really interesting practice. Reverse meditation is not something he made up. This is actually a stage or a type of meditation through um, Tibetan Buddhist lens. It's fascinating, and I hope you will come along on the journey with us. So without further ado, let's get into today's conversation. All right, Andrew, welcome to the Mindful Minute. Thank you for taking time to chat today. Yeah, thank you, Marissa. Delighted to be with you. Appreciate the opportunity. Mm-hmm. So I have to tell you, I've literally finished your book, Reverse Meditation. Have you seen it? I have not seen it in in, in galley. So that's Yay! awesome. Oh my gosh! Yeah, you- well, I finished it this morning. It's amazing, and I'm not oh, just saying that. that. Like. 
it is somehow <laughs> both so rich and complex and accessible at the same time. I mean, oh, I loved absolutely. it. And the funny thing is, as I was flipping back through as I was prepping for today and I underlined like every sentence, it's like, it didn't help me. I underlined everything. <laughs> That's awesome. I'm very touched. But Thank I'm, you for sharing that. Yeah. I'm so excited to chat with you about it. And I thought maybe we would jump in. Maybe you could just give listeners a little bit of your meditative background, how you got into meditation, the type of meditation uh, yeah. that you practice and teach? Sure, sure. Well, I started, geez Louise, well over 50 years ago at this point when I was a completely stressed out undergraduate and was diagnosed with hypertension and had some health-related problems um, for that. So I went to do Transcendental meditation was like the only thing around at that point. So I did TM and it was uh, just an amazing kind of before and after experience. It really changed my life on the spot. And then, so ever since that, I think I was 20, I started just looking deeper and deeper because uh, I realized qualities of mind that I'd never experienced before in the waking state. And I was just immediately um, hooked, you could say. And so since then, I become, you could say, a, a card-carrying student of Tibetan Buddhism, but I'm, I also consider myself more a curious than a Buddhist. I'm more interested and uh, curious about the nature of things. And so I've done a um, three-year retreat, which is where I learned the meditations that are associated with this book, The Reverse Practices. I've engaged in um, probably at this point over 30,000 hours of meditation. Um, been in labs being studied around that sort of thing. And it's really hands down, the meditative arts are by far the most important thing I do in this life. Um, and one reason I wanted to write the book that we're, I think we're going to be talking a little bit about is I wanted to expand the scope of the traditional understanding of what meditation is, and especially how we can use these amazing wisdom traditions to work with difficult emotional states and physical pain. So Lots more to say, but that's an initial shot across the bow there. Yeah, that's great. And so let's like go right into this. Can you maybe lay a foundation for what we're talking about when you say reverse meditation? Yeah, right, <laughs> exactly. Right. Yes, yeah, like what? It comes from the tradition. I didn't make it up. It comes from a kind of a specific branch, what's called the Mahamudra tradition for the deeper divers. And and fundamentally it's an extraordinarily compelling way to um, work with things that most people associate as the antithesis of meditation, hence reverse. And so the practices are, are called reverse because they reverse our relationship, in this case, to unwanted experiences, difficult emotional states, physical pain, and that sort of thing. They invite us to do the opposite, the reverse of what we would normally do, which is basically run away from them. You know, these practices are designed to invite us into these pains, to discover that, as one teacher beautifully put it, there was no way out. The magic is to discover that, to, that there's a way in. I find them extraordinarily applicable in this day and age when there's so much discord and distress and upheaval and you know, rest and pain. They're perfectly appropriate for this kind of dark age. They're a way to find the light within the darkness, a, a way to go, like I mentioned, to go into situations that we would normally and therefore, fundamentally, to transform obstacle into opportunity. And in that regard, they, they really vastly enhance our understanding of what practice is. We usually think of meditation as like getting zen or chilling out. And I'm, I'm not dismissing that. It's, it's totally fine. It's great. When the world is on fire, it's good to chill out. But what do you do when things really get 
blistering. What do you do when you're in a heap of hurt? Um, and by understanding these practices for ourselves, then we understand how we can relate to others who are also going through hardship. And so this ties into my deep interest in exploration of the end of life. I've written work a lot around death and dying. So this is a way to help prepare for really acute, intense situations like that. But they're also immediately applicable to the bumps and bruises, emotional and physical of daily life. Ways to work with any unwanted experience. You know, my experience these days, that's no small thing because there's no shortage of that, right? Yeah. Every time we feel some pain, some discord with this skill set, now we're actually armed with a kind of a, a crucible, a set of practices that allow us to uh, really transform these obstacles into opportunities. And I think that's really the great gift, especially in this day and age. Yeah. And you write about our, I guess, our innate reaction or our learned reaction to these painful situations. Uh, you use the word contraction, like yeah. this is what we would. I guess, quote unquote, normally do is contract away. Is that right? Oh, isn't that true? Yeah. And again, yeah. that's the really cool thing about this stuff is don't take my word for it. Test these teaching against your own experience. See if they make sense to you. And in my own experience, when I look at unwanted circumstances, my default reaction is in fact, what you just said is just to, to contract away. And what these practices will do is once we become sensitized to these levels of contraction, which run from really overt classical contractions of anger and aggression um, and rage all the way down to really, really subtle levels of contraction. Once we're sens sensitized to all the ways we do contract, even, even distraction is a form of contraction, mm. pulling away from the present moment. Once we're aware of all these, these ways we contract, we can use each and every one of these as an instance um, to open re and relax, expand. And that's a great gift. So let's say, let's just take an example. Let's say I get some really bad news, something I really don't want to hear. Almost always, if I, if I pay attention to what I'm feeling in my body, I will feel some level of contraction. And now when I'm sensitized to it with some of the methods I outlined in this book, then whenever I feel that, it's like, hey, wait a second, I don't have to react adversely from that contracted space. I can pause, I can breathe into it. I can respond. And so instead of adverse reactivity, you have this enhanced responsibility. And this is amazing. I mean, this can keep you out of a heap of trouble, both for yourself and for others. You know, here's another example. You're involved in a difficult conversation with somebody. You notice you're starting to get a little bit upset. Uh, once you're aware of these contractive um, impulses and tendencies, you can start to feel it. Sometimes literally I'll be all about open to, ready to open my mouth and say something that I'm going to regret. I go, wait a second, I'm contracting, I'm reacting. I pause, I feel into my body, I breathe in. And then from that space, I say, wait a second, I can relate to this experience instead of from it. I can respond instead of react. And therefore, incendiary explosive situations um, now become kind of tranquilized and abundant. Again, in this day and age with political divisiveness and unrest and all the ways that we are contentious and, and, and really contracting all the time, we realize, wow, I have all these amazing opportunities. It's really kind of in the tradition of alchemy in the West and Tantra in the East, which is about transforming lead into gold or poison into medicine. You can take the lead, transform it into gold in this alchemical or tantric way. Um, and therefore like, wow, boy, do I have a lot of opportunities here. And so again, it's a, this wonderful narrative of opening, expanding with the meditative 
path itself is altogether because many people tend to think meditation is just what you do on your cushion. It's what you do in special sequestered location, time and space. Again, I'm not criticizing that. It has a place. It's like an incubator. But, you know, you can't really live your life in an incubator, right? You have to get up. You have to grow up, get out and expand. And very often what happens is we leave our meditation behind. We leave our meditative mind behind. We lose it when we get out into the world. And so in a certain way, these practices help us find it. They help us find this indestructible inner peace, you know, sometimes what I call indestructible meditation, indestructible qualities of contentment that then allow you to enter really difficult situations, not just personally, but also interpersonally. You can go into states, situations with others that previously were just completely unworkable. And now because you've worked on yourself, you have the skill set um, to work with others. And so I just want to reinstate that, that these practices, yes, they're profoundly helpful for ourselves, but they're equally as helpful for others and how we relate to others, how we can diffuse explosive situations with others. You know, one of my favorite practices that you offer in the book, there are some little contemplations sort of sprinkled throughout to help us work with these concepts. And the one that I was like, oh, yeah, okay, I feel this is your suggestion was whatever your political leaning put on the opposite right. news station right so if you're liberal listen to fox right. if you're uh you know if you're right leaning then listen to rachel maddow and sit with that experience yeah. i didn't even have yeah. to do it all i had to do was think about doing it and i was like <laughs> oh that that is a practice in and of itself is contemplating doing that Isn't it? it was yeah. so powerful and it was such a moment of like right i could see how that is a step towards being able to stay open in conversations when you previously yeah. would be like, I would shut down immediately. I would throw up the wall and get out of there. Exactly. That's a reverse practice. So this is it, it, the way you practice it before it turns into a kind of spontaneous performance is exactly that's one instance where you would do, if you're a, a liberal, you listen to Sean Hannity, Tucker Carlson, or somebody that really gets your goat. <laughs> And then normally you would either throw the shoe at the screen or turn the channel or mute it. You actually do that as a practice and you'll feel, this is when you really feel the contraction, the aversion. And then good Lord, if we can't be open enough to talk to other people, how do we ever hope to, to heal the culture mm -hmm. wars and divisiveness? And so again, these, these practices have tremendous practicality and traction. And I, I particularly like that one as well, because uh, we all know how divisive the country is. And, and when we have these capacities, then when we're involved in dinner conversations with others or whatnot, who we just have views that are so disparate from our own, now all of a sudden we have greater, greater accommodation and space. And so one of the things that these reverse meditations cultivate, and this is what we're throwing into the mix, is they cultivate this kind of indestructible quality of a spacious accommodating mind. The meditative traditions, especially here, there's this, this little... Um, Carmen Jargon says, mix your mind with space. Mm. Um, and space is really interesting. I mean, like, like, for instance, here, when we look at physical space, outer space is not the same as the inner space of the mind and heart, but neither is it different. And so it's really interesting to look at space. Space at one level is it's really the softest thing in the world, right? There's nothing softer than space. But it's also there's nothing as indestructible as space, right? You can't cut it. You can't burn it. You can't bomb it. And so by, by learning how to expand open, favorite definition of meditation, habituation to openness, by expanding your mind into these more spacious qualities, then, hey, space is the ultimate container. Space is that which can receive everything without being adversely affected by anything. 
And so it, it cultivates this amazingly equanimous mind, this steady mind, this even mind, this spacious mind that just, just like physical space can receive everything without being adversely affected by it. And again, this is no small thing. This has tremendous applicability when you really are hurting, when you're in a lot of pain, physical or emotional, when you're reaching the, your end of life and things really get difficult or when others, like we're talking about political arenas or otherwise when you're involved in situations where you're normally almost even violently contract. Now you feel that, you open, you allow yourself to be spacious. And then that spaciousness is, is somewhat contagious. It allows other people to relax mm. and uh, kind of chill out, right? <laughs> because you have this particular quality of mind and that quality of mind really is infectious and contagious in the very best sense. And you guide us through you don't just ask us to like, now we're going to do these type of meditations, right? You take us through a sort of concentrated, what I would call like classical meditation. You're right here. You're focused just yeah. on this one aspect, your breath or your body. And then you move us into this more open awareness and then into the reverse. So maybe you could talk us a little through these steps. Yeah, that's really great. Thanks for bringing that up because it's important. I mean, the, these reverse meditations are a tad bit advanced. Because again, our usual knee-jerk reactivity towards adverse situations, it's so powerfully habitual, almost instinctual, it is to contract and run away. And so it's difficult to jump all the way up into these practices without a little bit of preparation. And so what I write about is the preparatory work of standard mindfulness meditation, standard quiescence practices, settling the mind. And then really the major, uh, in addition to the reverse meditations proper, the, the major contribution of, of meditations or what you mentioned, the practice of open awareness, which is where the mind really then expands. I mentioned earlier, mixing your mind with space, the very specific articulate set of instructions. Well, that sounds good, but I'm like, how do I do that? And so this is where it, it also gets really, really profound. I mean, this level of practice can go really for the deeper divers all the way to non-dual experiences, to what people might experience as glimpses of the enlightened state. And so then by, by working with these two preliminary practices, kind of setting the kind of groundless ground, opening, opening, habituating to openness, the mind again becomes more pliable, more awesome, softer, more accommodating. And then when you have this really open, almost paradoxical use of the word container or crucible, which is almost no container, no crucible, you know, mind that is so accommodating, so receptive. Then when you introduce things that you would previously just instantaneously contract, now you've got some preparatory work behind you. Now you can say, okay, I can bring this into my practice of open awareness. I know how to receive experiences in that regard. And so then we augment the four stages of the reverse meditations proper on top of the practice of open awareness. And so like you mentioned, it's, I think it's a, a relatively skillful on-ramp to these practices so that by the time you get to them, there's a, a classic adage in what are called the tantric meditations, the preliminaries are more important than the main practice. Well, you do the preliminaries properly, then by the time you get to these reverse meditations, which people would again say, you want me to do what? Are you kidding? You want me to enter painful situations voluntarily? Do you want me to enter loud, cacophonous, discord situations voluntarily? Well, yes. And that's why it's like that. It's, it's so reverse. It's so antithetical, contradictory to like, this is meditation. Yeah, this is industrial strength meditation. And so if you do these practices, then by the time you get there, because space is indestructible, then it's like, okay, I think I can do this. I think my mind and heart are really big enough. And underlying it all, again, is this very practical vector of this is really the practice of unconditional happiness. 
not conditional, conventional happiness that's always dependent on circumstance and conditions, and then you become a slave of those circumstances. This, again, is like indestructible happiness, the ability to be happy in, in an unconditional way, in a larger sense of that term, no matter what happens. And so that's also another level of what I playfully call stealth help. There's more going on than meets the eye here. Yes, you're preparing for all these really untoward, difficult circumstances, but it's also allowing you the capacity to just have this unflappable contentment towards whatever arises. This, this capacity to say, as some of the great wisdom masters have said, fundamentally, when they were asked, like, what's the secret to your contentment, to your happiness? They say so disarmingly, I don't mind what happens. But that's amazing. It's amazing. I don't mind that this really difficult situation happened. I don't mind. Well, how, did, how can somebody actually do that? Well, through these practices. Mm. And so the, the great meditative minds from all the different traditions, and I draw, as you know from the book, I draw on as many wisdom traditions as I can. I throw in a little science to support these because the, the practices themselves are so unconventional. Extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. So I draw on all oh, the Sufi tradition and the, and the Jewish mystical tradition and the Hindu tradition, Christian tradition. I will draw and take any truth I can get it from all these supporting wisdom schools to, to buttress, to support this kind of outrageous notion of like, you want me to do what? And then some people would say, ah, you know, geez, why am I going to do that? Why do I want to work with pain and suffering and hardship? Well, then I say, that's fine. You don't have to. That's fine. Selective. But is pain optional in life? Is heartbreak optional in life? Is loss, suffering optional in life? I don't think so. And so then what do you do with your skill set? What do you do with your meditation? Where does your precious meditation go when the crap hits the fan? Well, now with these practices, it's like, whoa, I've got a wonderful new skill set that's going to allow me to go into my own personal difficulties and also environmental difficulties with a whole new way of relating to these things that, again, it's no small thing in this day and age. I love that you you mentioned, and I really enjoyed the way you pulled so many different threads of tradition and science. I find, I joke all the time on the podcast that I'm like a secret physicist because <laughs> I find that there's so much correlation between physics yeah. and the natural world and our meditation practice. And I'm, I'm reading these quotes from Carlo Rovelli, yeah, who I love right. his writings. And so I was really excited to see that in the book. And I, the other thing I loved that felt so skillful. I'm at the end. I want to share a story about my a reaction I had at the end of the book, and everything I read up until the end of the book sort of prepared me. I felt like for the big asks at the end, and you know, you bring in some very complex, in the sense that they're hard to grasp concepts for, that are taught through Buddhism, and you did it in a way that I that it was like percolating in and sitting in my brain. I'm starting to digest it and reflect on it, like absolute truth and relative truth and right view and wrong view. I'm like, wait, what? And then at the end, I was like, oh, right. well, now I know why he gave me all that information. <laughs> oh, that's so cool. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. It really makes me smile. It, it's really like, it's really, it's almost like a mental yoga, right? Where mm -hmm. where these practices are, are are inviting you to assume a kind of emotional, cognitive mudra, asana, posture, like a warrior's posture. Like, you know, you stretch into these things. It's not comfortable. It's not easy at first. And you feel the stretch and you're going, oh, man, this is not easy. Well, stretching is good for growth. And so that these practices are a stretch. Um, but what do they do? 
they stretch the heart and mind open. And um, in line with what you were talking about, very core to this book is this kind of integral approach where, again, I draw from all these different streams. I bring in the scientists. I bring in, again, I've been involved in these pain studies. I, I, I've been a clinical practitioner, uh, oral surgery, uh, retired dentist. I have worked in the trenches. I've written thousands of prescriptions. I've worked with intense physical pain. And also as a meditation instructor for um, over 30 years, I see people in, in incredible spiritual and emotional duress. And so the gift of this book, I think, is joining heaven and earth, east and west, the best of the ancients and the moderns, to bring a full spectrum bearing to these practices that otherwise, again, you're going to look at this and you're going to, you're going to go, you want me to do what? And so that, that's why all the support is there. And then, as you suggested, I try to handhold into some of these deeper issues. And then they may not land immediately, but again, they're a little bit of a stretch. But perhaps you'll walk away from several pages and paragraphs and you'll, and something will settle with you and you're going to reflect and think and you're going to feel that stretch from within. And so the aspiration towards the, you know, really towards the end of the book is, you could say um, playfully, this book is designed to leave stretch marks on your mind. Mm. It's designed to, to have you take that warrior's pose, take that read and you're going to go, this is crazy. Well, try it and see. And then you'll walk away with it, I hope, with a more expansive relationship to your own heart and mind, your own capacity to make friends with all the dimensions of your own being, because we have within us a host of unwanted experiences that are, you know, repressed. And so there are skill sets for how to work with that. And then again, once we do that, then we can bring that same skill set in relationship to our working with others. And so fundamentally, this narrative of openness and expansion, again, using contraction, now is an opportunity to open. And when we're sensitized to all the ways we contract, and I have several chapters on the omnipresent super contractors and then the, the super subtle contractors. And, and everyone is, is in, with a contemplation and a meditation, say, see for yourself. Can you feel this? It's a highly somatic, visceral exploration. At the end of the day, this is a meditation manual. It's a repair manual for how to repair our relationships to unwanted experiences. And so all the kind of doctrinal footing, the science and the spirituality and all the stuff, it's simply there to support the practices, to create the right view so that when you go in, you know what you're doing and why. But fundamentally, it's highly embodied, it's highly visceral, it's highly felt. And I mean, that's when we change, when we feel things. So it's a wonderful invitation, inward bound invitation to look with them, to establish a new relationship, to all our interior landscapes, and then by extension, what happens exteriorly. Um, and so it's a, again, I like to look at it as a very practical, I mean, there's a lot of practical tips here for how to work with anything from stubbing your toe on a paper cut to the loss of a job or the death of someone or tremendous pain. And I share a number, and I guess the confidence in writing this book comes from me applying these things for 30 plus years. And I share ex experiences about kidney stones and surgery and heartbreak, things that everybody has to deal with and how I engage this stuff myself to really radically transform my relationship. And that's, that's what, that's the fundamental confidence. It's like, Hey, I'm just like you. My storyline might be a little bit different, but I'm just like you. And so if I can do this, you can do it. And that's what, that's the aspiration is this kind of connecting to the human condition and just giving people more tools, skill set to working with life circumstance. Can you give us a little 
overview of these four steps that carry us through a reverse meditation? Yeah, absolutely. Each of the steps is in itself could be enough. Each one, each of the four, the progressive, each of the four steps that I will describe for some people, they'll work with that and they'll go, this is great. This is all I need to do. Hard stop, done. Fantastic. And so the first step is really, um, again, all four of these steps are about altering our relationships. So the first step is an observational one that instead of the usual, again, again, a knee-jerk reactive contraction against adverse circumstance, we observe it. We develop this kind of witness awareness where we, we temporarily step back so that we can see um, our pain, our discord in a new light. We bring say, hey, guess what? We bring some space. Space itself is curative, right? And so we bring some space, we insert some space, we allow ourselves, we invite ourselves to observe. Because usually when we contract, we just implode, right? I mean, you just crunch in on yourself. That's what transforms simple pain into complex suffering, right? I have this little equation in the book that's really, I think, quite compelling. S equals P times R. Suffering equals pain times resistance, i.e. contraction. So you feel the contraction. Okay, I'm going to open. I'm going to expand. I'm going to observe. That observational stance in itself is amazing. But if you want to go a little bit farther than that, then the next step is be with it. So you observe it. Next step would be come alongside in it and invite yourself to be along with it. This helps you now establish a more intimate, visceral relationship to what's happening. Because one near enemy of the observational one is this kind of escapism. You know, you can witness it to the point where you just want to FedEx out of it. And so that's one near enemy of the observational phase. So the next one is inviting us down and back in, be with it, make friends with it. The word in Sanskrit is so beautiful, metta, maitri. It's actually an act of kindness to be with the pain. And people are going to go, what, what, how is that possibly kind? Well, the highest expression of kindness is, is speaking the truth, living the truth. And that unwanted experience is true. You may not like it, but it's true. And so there's a kindness towards yourself. It's like, hey, you know what? I've got the capacity. I can be with this pain. And so then the next stage, that prepares for, for the third stage, which is the examine it. This, this is where it really gets interesting to me. You bring in this kind of analytic um, meditation quality. For meditators who are listening, this is called the Pashana Insight Meditation, where now you're not observing it. You're not merely observing it. You're not merely being with it. Now you start to analyze it in a really interesting way. This begins the process of deconstruction. What is this thing called pain? What is this thing called suffering? Most people have a completely, like Plato said, the unexamined life is not worth living. We have a completely unexamined relationship to pain and suffering. We don't really know what it is. So now the invitation is not cognitively, viscerally. What is this thing called pain? Let's find out. Go into it, armed with these tools as deeply as you can or as deeply as you're willing to, and really inquire at a somatic visceral level. So you're like waking in, you're waking down into your body, and you're really examining, what is this thing called suffering? What is this thing called pain? And wow, I mean, that's amazing. This starts to deconstruct it. This is the demolition phase. You start to realize, as amazing as it may sound, that suffering is absolutely a construct. Suffering is optional. Pain even can be constructed. So you reduce suffering back into pain, and even pain can be reduced to what? Raw, pure, maybe not be pleasant from an egoic perspective, but raw, pure, unmediated awareness. So you're deconstructing pain. 
And then the last phase, this is the, the uniting or yoking phase. This is where it finally becomes spiritual. And the reason I say that is because at this final stage, the experience, our relationship to pain, to unwanted experiences becomes non-dual. And so now it's, it's a little bit different from stage two, which is be with it. Stage four is not be with it, be it, become it, become the pain. And this is when people go like, what? You want me to do what? You want me to become one with my pain? Yes. But again, armed with all this preparatory work and going through the first three stages, now you're ready for this. Now you're saying, you know what? I'm ready to surrender. I'm ready to go into this pain, whatever it is, doesn't matter. 100%, feel it 100%. That's when it becomes spiritual. And, and I guide people through exercises to do this, some physical stuff, some emotional stuff, some sound stuff. And just very briefly, just a little kind of more advanced um, peppering of what this leads you to. Oh, and by the way, the acronym, right? The acronym here is O-B-E-Y, obey. Observe it, be with it, examine it, yoke to it. Obey a new command, a new relationship to unwanted experience. Hmm. And so is a, is a brief peppering of the, of the deeper end. And I invite people to really look, don't test, test this against your own experience. See if it's true. By becoming one with your pain, there's no one to hurt. Let me say that again. By becoming one with your pain, there's no one to hurt. There's just this thing, the sensation to which we append the label pain. And by immediate implication, we generate the sense of self. And that's, as you suggested, that's now we're going to the really deep end of the pool. And if people don't want to go there, oh my God, don't worry about it. Stay with the observational phase, stay right. with the be with the phase. You don't have to go all the way to the yoking end. But for a deeper divers, the spiritual people, pain doesn't really become spiritual until it becomes non-dual. What does that really mean? Well, that's what the practices invite you to find out for yourself. And for me, that's the game changer. That's where you discover it's like, holy moly, this is a radically profound new relationship to pain where my unwanted experiences that I previously ran away from now actually become opportunities to realize the, the non-dual, you could say awakened state. That's no small thing. So bullet point through the four stages. Amazing. Thank you. I want to highlight one thing that I thought was very valuable in the book. And, and I think you pull this forward through the pain study that you were a part of. Oh yeah. And yeah. so correct me if I'm paraphrasing and if I'm not getting it quite right, but what I took away from it from memory is that the result of, of this pain study where you had something that was like getting hotter, I think as it was, yeah, it and was it was yeah. measuring your, your brain's response to that pain. The meditators were less reactive but felt more, correct? So it, it's it's not bypassing, which is so valuable for listeners to remember is we're not talking about my least favorite phrase in the world is it is what it is. Like, oh, it doesn't bother me. I'm fine. But really, truly, we're just like skirting right. around the issue. And that's not what you're talking about right. here. No, that's such a great point. So thanks for bringing that up. Yeah, this is not a spiritual bypassing kind of thing. What's so cool about the science, man? I mean, the science supports this stuff, right? So the idea here is really, as you become more and more open, guess what happens? Well, you feel things more. This is the tender part. You know, mm -hmm. you're opening in both Sanskrit and Pali, the same word for mind and heart. They're, they're one word, chitta. So mind and heart are the same thing. So as you're opening your mind, you're opening your heart. 
And so love is central to this thing. You learn how to love yourself. You learn how to love others. And so what happens is so beautiful is you open, open, open. You feel things more. You feel things more, but they hurt you less. Let me say that again. Mm -hmm. You feel things more. You feel more of what was previously unwanted. You feel it more. You're more awake. You're more alive. You're more sensitive, but it hurts you less. Why? Because you're not contracting against it. The contraction is what transforms the simple sensation into pain, which transforms that into suffering. You've deconstructed it back to pure sensory awareness. And this is what makes it so exquisite. This is where the compassion comes in, the suffering for others. So you're opening, opening, opening. So it's not only feeling your own pain. This is true compassion, literally, etymologically, to suffer with. So you're opening, opening, you're feeling the pain of others. And so what's so beautiful about this is at the end, and I write about this, is that if this set of teachings isn't a benefit to others in the world today, it's irrelevant. These spiritual traditions, all the psychobabble stuff, this stuff is irrelevant if it can't help others in the world today. And so that's what I really emphasize at the end. The sensitivity, the openness, the expansion allows you to connect with others to the planet. You feel the pain of the planet more. You feel the pain of sentient beings, animal life, and every every other form of sentience on this on this on a planet and so therefore your heart just gets bigger and bigger and bigger but like space it hurts you less because there's no place for it to land see nothing can hurt space mm -hmm. and so when the, when the mind and heart gets so big and spacious it's almost like neutrinos you know they come through you there's like a trillion neutrinos passing through my hand every second my mind and heart are so big i feel all the stuff more than ever before but it hurts me less because I don't give it a place to land and I don't proliferate on it and I don't appropriate it and create my dramas and my storylines and all the tragedies that we love to feed on, right? And so that is, again, another really important point is the way it connects us very practically to others, to the planet, to the earth. It has a lot of street value in terms of like when you're this open, you're going to want to help the planet because you realize you're not separate from the planet. And so therefore, when we come all the way to the end, to the really deeper end, it not only does it become extremely spiritual, it becomes extremely practical. It's like, how do we take this stuff and really use it in a world that's on fire? I want to share a story with you about my experience finishing the book. Cool. So it happened this morning. It was this morning early. I have two young children. I have an eight-year-old and a four-year-old. And they're sitting at the kitchen table eating breakfast. I'm on the couch drinking coffee, reading the last two chapters. My partner's drinking coffee, working on his laptop. And I get to the part of the book where you share that as you're writing this book, you're dealing with a prostate cancer diagnosis. Yeah, right. And paraphrased, you say something along the lines of, and I'm okay. Like, I'm okay with moving through this experience. And please forgive my raw, unfiltered thoughts, like judgment all the way. Please forgive me. I don't okay. even know if they're true. Okay. But what happened to me as I was reading <laughs> that is the split second thought I had was, I bet he doesn't have children. The next thought I had it, within you know milliseconds of the first was, I could never be okay with that because I would never be okay with like dying before my children become adults. And then the third thought I have all in this one millisecond experience was like, shit, that's the whole point of this book is I have to work with that. <laughs> and I, I really just enjoy that whole 
process right. of realizing like, right, this is the work yeah. is, you know, you do all these little meditations and you're like, oh, I'm, I'm so, I'm so good at meditating. But then you go that one step deeper yeah. into the thing that you're so, to use your word, contracted around. Yeah. yeah. Ooh, yeah. Andrew, big moment there. <laughs> Well, I mean, thank you so much for sharing that because that, I mean, first of all, it's a very candid, honest response to this, but like you suggested, this is where the yoga comes in. This is where the stretching comes in. And that's where there's all the preparatory comments about the views, traditions, everything that supports it. Then the sequence of practices that come before it. And so by the time you get to the reverse meditations, you, you have this backing with you. You've got the unwrap there and then you can step in. And then you may discover, is, is, uh, I, I suspect you will, as you walk away and reflect on some of your initial reaction to this and you contemplate on some of the teachings from um, these traditions. Because what you really fundamentally, in a real way, what I do is I act as a kind of a cultural translator. I mean, these practices and approaches, if you look between the lines, they've been part of the wisdom traditions for thousands of years. And so I'm just kind of bringing them up and out, culturally translating them, using the language of the West that relates to us to make sense. And then if it doesn't land with you right away, something, because it is true, I, 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 may, may I excuse me for being so presumptive, mm -hmm. but pain is true. Suffering is true. All these unwanted experiences are true. The antidotes, the way to work with them are true. And so there's something about this real news that will stay with you. It may not land with you originally. In fact, I, I preface in the book, sometimes people contract against the notion of these practices themselves. Like, are you effing kidding me? And so then you, you walk away and you reflect, you think, you soften, you open, you open, you come back, you open, open. And then in my experience, both working with myself and working with others as I teach these meditations, then eventually these teachings are massaged into your being and then they start to pop up. And you may notice that one of the great things about these practices is because they're, they're a little bit more intense than normal practices, my experience is they also are incorporated, literally incorporated, becoming embodied much more quickly. I think partly because of the, of the intensity and, and the immediated reality of these practices. And this stuff is really great. This is encouraging because it doesn't take a tremendous amount of practice before you start to perform. And so maybe for you, you may notice as you walk away and you, and you feel some contraction run, whatever you're going to go, oh my God, there's another instance of contraction. Oh my God. And then I also talk about the proliferation that then ensues, all the commentary that you caught and you just shared, you catch that, you come back to the raw sensory experience, you come back to your body. And then that's really, your body then knows what to do. Your body knows how to deal with all this. So this is a really profound, I think, waking down invitation into the wisdom of your body and let your body, your body knows what to do with this stuff. Even when you're dying, it releases endorphins. Your body knows what to do. Just get out of the way. And so these practices are skillful ways to invite us out of the way. And then you may find that some of these, I don't know if I can do that because of my kids. Well, that's, that stretch may be a little bit of a snap. That's the thing. You don't want to stretch too far. The stretch transforms into a snap. Well, that's too much. So you walk away, you back off and you go, ah, you know, I need to think about this. I need to come back. You come back. You assume a pose again, right? You get a little bit better at that warrior pose, more open, more expansive, less that are the flexible, right? For they're never bent out of shape. <laughs> And then some of these things are good for you for having the sensitivity to even recognize that, to acknowledge that. Because then again, what are you doing? You're relating to it instead of from it. You can, you can see it, you can label it, you can recognize it. 
and then you can start to establish a more healthy same relationship so thank you for sharing that i mean that's really awesome yeah thank you so much uh this the book has been so rich already and i'm very thank excited you. to go back through it and incorporate some of these practices i wonder if maybe you could lead us in a little short practice to experience for ourselves yeah let's do it let's do it and so um <laughs> the first thing i want to do is just go ahead and close your eyes and maybe just take like literally this literally called one breath meditation session i love it for just the duration of one inhalation and one exhalation just breathe and connect and then i invite you to put your right hand over your heart center i actually start every one of my morning meditation sessions with this little practice. And in a completely non-judgmental way, like Swami Kripalu once said, the highest form of spiritual practice is self-observation without judgment. Just simply do a, like a weather check without judgment, this is the observation thing. Observe. Just notice. What is it like today? What's the weather like inside today? If you notice commentary starting, conceptual proliferation, recognize that. Just let it go. Come back to the felt sense. And hand over your heart is a gesture of radical acceptance. I'm okay. I'm okay today, just the way I am. I might be feeling like total crap. But you know what? It's okay. It's part of the human condition. So the hand over your heart is almost like hugging yourself, metta, maitri, loving kindness towards oneself. You may be in a heap of hurt. So the next step is be with it fully. Step two, just be with it. What does this heap of hurt really feel like? And again, it doesn't matter. Don't try to have a spiritual experience. Don't try to have any experience. Just be with whatever you're experiencing right now. Unconditionally, 100%. Be with it. And we're going through this somewhat quickly, but again, you can pause at any point, see which one of these stages works for you. The next one would be, you know, curiosity, inquire. 
what is this blank, blank, whatever it is, what is this anxiety really made of? What is this heartache made of? What is this discord made of? Again, it doesn't matter. Be curious. What is this sensation, this feeling tone? Doesn't matter. What is it? Be curious. Step three. Inquire. Examine in a lighthearted, playful way. You may notice if you do engage in this practice, that even with these first three stages, you're already radically starting to alter your relationship to the contents of your experience. Just by observing it, being with it, examining it. That may be enough, but for the intrepid deeper diver explorers, then you take the last step and you plunge into it, become whatever it is. Again, it doesn't matter. Be it, yoke to it. Allow yourself to literally disappear into whatever it is you're feeling, not thinking, feeling. What happens if I dissolve into this feeling? Go into it a hundred percent. And just as a little comment for the deeper divers, this is from a great master. The absolute experience of duality in this case, whatever you're feeling that we usually feel and experience in a dualistic way. The absolute experience of duality is the experience of non-duality. Non-duality, what does it literally mean? Not to. Unite, yoke. And it's with this last stage, for those who like to go this far, that the experience, whatever it is, becomes spiritual, sacred. And then as you do this with increased familiarity of the landscape of your own mind and heart, you can cascade through these four stages quite quickly. Some people with familiarity, we'll go right to the fourth stage. But again, be your own guide, be your own meditation instructor here. And just see, see what feels right for you. Trust your inner voice. Stay at whatever stage level works for you. And then lower your hand, keep your eyes closed. And simply notice.
is your relationship to the interiority of your being changed, softer, more workable, more spacious. And then you open your eyes. And what I always do is I just very gently start to look around because one near enemy of any practice is it can become too precious. If we just keep it within the sanctuary of this kind of formality. And so therefore, as we transition into post-meditation or into life, mindfully moving around, holding this quality of the meditative mind allows you then to what? Extend it into life, into post-meditation. And that's, that's really the gift, right? Practice becomes performance with some familiarity and your default starts to change. Instead of contracting, you expand. Instead of reacting, you respond. And you'll start to slowly notice this and your mind and heart opens, expands, your life becomes easier, softer, more accommodating. You may find yourself kinder to others, more loving. And that's really the gift of these practices. Andrew, thank you so much. What a gift this conversation was. I really appreciate it. It's really, it's been a delight. Thanks for your wonderful sharing and for a deep reading of the text. It really means a lot to me. So um, delight to be on with, on with you and discuss this. Thank you so much. And for listeners, there'll be links to Andrew's website as well as where you can purchase the book in the show notes. You'll be able to find it there. And with that, I'll just say thank you one more time. All the best. Thanks for listening to the Mindful Minute. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider sharing it with a friend or leaving me a review wherever you get your podcasts. This helps others to find the show. And let's face it, we could definitely use more meditators out there. The Mindful Minute is recorded on Muskogee land and is produced with the support of Michael Sayhouse and Brianna Nielsen. To join my live classes, ask questions, or learn more about my teacher trainings, please visit MerrillArnett.com. Thanks again for listening. I'll see you next week.